IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello, everyone, and welcome to IndieCast. On the show, we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode, we respond to emails from you, the IndieCast listener. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, the January 6th of Rock Critics, Ian Cohen. <laughs> Ian, how are you? We're just going like right in. Like a- After three weeks of taking time off, we are tackling a subject which no one seems to know what tone to take. Uh, you know, the boys are back. The boys are back. Yeah, I guess, man. Yeah, because we're like, back in town. Yeah, I mean, like, is that like because people like are trying, like people are in real time trying to figure out, like, can we be like kind of joke about this whole thing because you know they looked ridiculous or was this a real threat to like american democracy there we we are still very much in this radioactive uh blast zone of the the past year and so i i we're recording this on the morning of january 6th yeah. we should say because we're posting the day after so we don't know what's going to be happening on January 6th, how people are going to be observing yeah. the one-year anniversary <laughs> of this event. Hopefully everything will go okay. Yeah. Uh, do you think Ariel Pink is going to come out of his like uh, bunker and address the anniversary here? I mean, this was... A big day for him. It, it was in, this is like the indie rock connection, really, to this story. Is Ariel? Yeah. Pink. Where, where where were you the day you couldn't play round and round at a party anymore? Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the fact is, like Ariel Pink tended to not come out of his bunker like for any reason <laughs> over the past several years, which is kind of what got him in this mess in the first place. But we came out of his bunker to uh, protest the. Uh, the counting of elect uh, of electors. I mean, that was his thing, right? I mean, cause I, I don't remember. Like it, I think that was the thing. You know, my question about the Ariel Pink story is, you know, because if you remember, Tucker Carlson uh, interviewed Ariel yes, Pink, he did. and I wonder, like, how long did Tucker Carlson spite listen to Ariel Pink? To own the libs, like, did he make it to January seventh before <laughs> he was like, "Screw this, I'm I'm done," or do you think he went on? A bender, like a deep dive into the catalog like of Ariel Pink, and he's just a total head. All the, you know, he, all the paw track stuff that he did, uh, you know. <laughs> um, that's a, I, I do like. I'm sure that they took like a cursory listen because I mean, there are times when I have to like talk about an artist that I'm completely unfamiliar with, so I just kind of do the 20 minute. Uh, you know, shallow dive into the uh, Apple albums essentials. But I'm going to guess probably at least half of before today, maybe a little bit of mature themes. Uh, or they just had like a, an intern. Like I guarantee like Fox News does have like some like Columbia grad who is just kind of like faking their way through right wing media to get like uh, a couple of uh, – a couple of jobs on the resume before they like try to get into NPR or whatever. So I think that Tucker Carlson had to come at least somewhat prepared. Do you, have you noticed that Kennedy, the uh, former MTV BJ who I I think she hosted alternative nation or 120 minutes, at least occasionally back in the day. She had a rocket from the crypt tattoo back in the day, back when, (laughs) back when you, back when San Diego legends rocket from the crypt, uh, 
had a thing where if you got a tattoo, you could get into any of their shows free for the rest of your life. She had one. But anyway, she's a Fox News host now. Uh, and I think she was a Republican back yeah. in the day. So she's always been uh, conservative, but uh, you know the MTV to Fox News pipeline <laughs> includes her. And also uh, Rachel from the San Francisco season of The Real World. Mm. Her husband, Sean Duffy, is like a Republican senator from Wisconsin or represented. I don't know if he's still in office or not. <laughs> but anyway, Rachel from The Real World, she's been on Fox News. Wow. Um, I don't know if there's any other examples. Um, I want to ask quick, like, how was your vacation? You know, like you said, we've been gone for three weeks. Did you have a good holiday break? Yeah, I had a good holiday break. And now I'm looking at these mailbag questions and feeling like, you know, like our listeners have this IndieCast thing down better than we do. Like they, oh, man. They've, been, uh, yeah. they've been practicing over the, it's like when the fan fiction becomes better than like the source material, like the, yeah, this is I, us now, man. Our, our reader, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get to our mailbag because uh, our readers are like writers for this show now. Like they are giving us incredible content that we can just lay back on our piles of indie rock money <laughs> and not do any work because the readers are doing all the work for us. Um, by the way, I also had a good vacation. You didn't ask me how my vacation was. Yeah, because I, I kind of don't assume, care. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to assume that you care. I do. Uh, w- one thing, you know, I don't think we missed a ton of news while we were gone, but like one story I, I did want to revisit. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, Steve Albini and the guy from Eve 6 uh, had an online argument about Counting Crows oh. uh, over like New Year's <laughs> weekend. Did you see this? Uh, you know what? Like maybe I had a better vacation than you did because I, I did not see that. I saw it after the fact. Uh, I saw it a few days later. You know, I'm on various, you know, like when you tweet a lot about a certain artist, you'll get um, more tweets. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, for that band. So I've tweeted a lot about Counting Crows. So I think I'm like on the Counting Crows, uh, you know, pulse here. So I get all Counting Crows news. And I, so I saw this a couple of days after the fact that uh, the Eve 6 guy, he was defending Counting Crows. And Steve Albini, of course, was was ripping Counting Crows, as you would expect. I think he called them music for wine-drunk preppies, was one quote. A very Steve Albini-like <laughs> quote. Um, and I don't even know how this got started. I don't know <laughs> if, like, the Eve Six guys said something about Counting Crows and Steve Albini responded, or if it was the other way around. Um, of course, I am a huge Counting Crows fan, but I will... Uh, defend Steve Albini's right to criticize them because he is a he's a musical legend and he's a legend of course because he produced Razorblade Suitcase <sighs> drums on swallowed uh, oh god man that's that that's why you get Steve Albini that's why you go to Electric Audio yeah I know and he's done other things too I think yeah. I, I'll have to look him up on Wikipedia I know that he produced Razorblade Suitcase I think when he dies that'll be the first thing in in his obituary yeah Steve Albini, comma, the producer of 1996's Razorblade Suitcase, <laughs> has died today. Yeah. And he was also in some bands and produced other yeah. records. Um, but I just felt like this is a sign that we've been gone for too long. Yeah. When Steve Albini and the Eve Six guy are really doing the things that we should be doing. I know. Also, I love the fact that we've been talking about this tweet for, you know, a minute or two. And not once did we 
consider the possibility that Eve Six guy has an actual name. Like I, I know what it is, and I refuse to use it just because. I mean, Eve Six. Guy. I know what it is too. Okay. Yeah, th- it, it's funnier though to call <laughs> yeah, him Eve Six guy. Absolutely, and I, I mean, I just love the fact that like, I I don't know what your first experiences were like talking to. I mean, you've been interviewing people for a long time, so. Uh, you're probably never haven't been starstruck in a while, but like Eve Six guy, I remember him saying that Inside Out was like kind of his attempt to make a Jawbreaker song, which leads me to believe that he's a huge Steve Albini fan. Probably fantasized about uh, having Steve Albini produce an Eve Six album, and here he is, 25 years later, and finally gets to interact with Steve Albini, and it's an argument over Counting Crows. I mean, this is like kind of a never meet your heroes sort of lesson perhaps. Uh, and also I'm a bit like, I will defend counting crows. Like, yeah, wine drunk preppy. Uh, that is kind of me. Like, I mean, when counting crows were, uh, at their peak. So yeah, I'm I'm just gonna, I'm going to own that. Well, and I'll just say that whenever I drink wine, I usually want to put on razor blade seat. <laughs> so, you know, th- that's like my go-to wine record. So, you know, Steve Albini, you got to watch yourself there a little bit. Um, can I tell you my quick Steve Albini story? Sure. I've never interacted with him. I've never interviewed him or anything. But I wrote a column for the AV Club many, many years ago that ended up being conversation fodder on the message board for electrical audio. Mm-hmm. And Steve Albini opined on my column, and he called me, quote, a date-raping Bush uh, voting bro. Wow. Yeah, which I don't I don't know where that came from because there was nothing about Bush or anything like that in my. Uh, well, maybe he thought like Bush voting, like maybe he meant the band Bush, no, I... <laughs> and not George W. Bush, in which case he would be correct. Yeah, and I think that we would have common ground on there because we're we're both Bush supporters. <laughs> uh, in that regard. But yeah, he didn't like my, I don't, I don't remember what column it was, but he didn't like it. <laughs> I love the fact so that it, you can't remember what column it was. Just no, that you I don't remember. Just that Steve Albini was pissed about. I mean, that is like, uh, that is a classic Steve Albini story. I know that like Steve is trying to, uh, or has like made, tried, tried to reckon with his past as like the original edgelord uh, pre-Twitter. But I mean, that is, that's going to be forever a kind of classic story. Something that has nothing to do with him that he just feels the need to interject himself into. And, uh, yeah. Dave well, Ra- and also, like, describing people in these, like, reductive terms that really have nothing to do with the task at hand. Yeah. It's the same thing, like, how you describe, you're attacking a band like Counting Crows by classifying their fans uh-huh. as this archetype that you don't like. Yeah. You're basically just saying, I mean, because, like, a wine-drinking or wine drunk preppy, it's yeah. a nicer way of saying a date raping Bush voter bro, you know, which is what he said to me. The guy who made a band called Rape Man, you know, all of a sudden has like big opinions <laughs> about this. Do we want to do a shout out quick to like, because oh, yeah. we, we both had positive music news this week, yeah. things that we were excited about. Um, of course, for me, Father John Misty, new single. Yep. Sounds very swanky, very kind of like mid twentieth century croonery type mm. music. I it, I really like it. It was a beautiful song. Mm-hmm. Excited for the new record. Uh, there's also that band, The Smile. I don't know if you're interested in this at all, but that's the side project for Tom York and Johnny Greenwood, and the drummer from Sons of Kemet. I can't remember the drummer's name, but he's a great drummer. And the song is like 
pretty rocking. It's like the most rocking music to come out of any kind of Radiohead project in 15 to 20 years. Yeah. So that was good for me. And then for you, there was like big hardcore and emo news yeah, this week. Yeah, Vane.fm. Oh, man. That is like – so they used to be called Vane. Now this is – but um, in 2018, they made a record called Error Zone, which began with the Amen breakbeat. Um and uh, they're back now. They're going to be touring with Touche Amore. They're 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 seeming like they're going to be like one of those bands on the Code Orange tra- trajectory where they start playing like festivals headlined by like Corn and Metallica, and maybe get like a WWE theme and uh, you know Turnstile obviously broke it wide open for bands like this. So um, yeah, no skipping leg day in 2022. Uh, one I, I saw the video for their single. Yeah. And like, there's like this like dismembered head <laughs> jumping out of a bed. Yeah, it's a very unsettling video. Yeah, total AJ Soprano T-shirt. Uh, they are leaning into it. God bless them. It's like a bloody. It's like a head with like a bloody neck, and it's just like jumping out of like a bed sheet. Yes, at you. Yeah, they they are owning the new metal. Like people are like trying to it's say, crazy. yeah, oh, hardcore band vein. No, they're new metal. Include the umlaut. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And also. <laughs> During the vacation, like uh, one of my most memorable moments was uh, watching a laggy, sort of glitchy live stream of the Hotel Year playing their first uh, show in what had to be at least four years. It was the uh, Counterintuitive Records Holiday Showcase. <laughs> this is great. It was like Oso Oso played, Illuminati Hotties played, Roswell Kid played. I mean, if there was any. If there was any reason for for me to ever hop a plane and head to Boston in the middle of December, that would have been it. Um, look, as much of a hotel year fan as I am, they are kind of a hit or miss live band in their day. They sounded great uh, at this show. They they the crowd was super into it. Um, they were inspired. They played uh, a really awesome set, and you know I don't necessarily think that they need to be going on tour, you know, right now, or whatever. I think if they do, it'll be, they'll hold out for like the 10 year anniversary of uh, home, like no place. And, um, but still it just, fe- it just felt nice to see like, Oh yeah, they still really enjoy playing music. You know, maybe Christian, Chris, we, we, we've, we, we've, we've, uh, we've covered the two biggest uh, poker players in indie rock, Steve Albini and Christian Holden. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Did they play any new songs? Or no. Old, oh, they're classics. Yeah. The cla- they're, I don't think they'll ever make a record again, which is fine by me. But uh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, no new, no new music, no covers, just playing the classics. But they did play one song off their uh, first record, which is uh, you know that's a, a deep cut or two, but not uh, and nothing new. Well, let's not forget that they they could have played your wedding. <laughs> uh, they offered after the fact, yeah. so you know it could have been this could have been the second gig after that one. <laughs> Um, let's get to our mailbag. Cause as we have alluded to, we have incredible questions, uh, this week. Uh, we haven't done a mailbag in like probably a month because oh, yeah. we had a couple episodes. I feel like where we didn't do a mailbag cause we had just too much stuff to talk about. So we're catching up. We're emptying out some of the mailbag here, uh, in this episode. And this first question, you and I both agree. This is the best question we've ever got. Yeah. It's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, and it comes from Alistair. In Denver, he writes, Hi, Stephen. I've been listening since Celebration Rock days and always appreciate you and Ian's due diligence 
when it comes to remembering some guys. So let's quiz him. Below are some trivia questions to be read at Ian. It'd be an honor to stump Ian <laughs> on some profoundly useless knowledge I have acquired over the years. And yeah, he wrote a quiz. This is a five-question quiz. Uh, incredible questions. <laughs> these are these are incredible. And you 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 swore to me that you did not look at the answers. No, I, I saw that there was an answer key, and like the moment that happened, I I just skipped past it. Like I swear, like. I swear to God, I don't know the answer to any of these off the top. So let's. let's okay, so we have, we have competitive integrity <laughs> in this quiz. That's right. Ian has not cheated. Um, so let's get to it. Question number one: Which Pitchfork best new music band did Bruce Willis cite as one of his favorite new bands in a 2007 press conference? Mm. A. A place to bury strangers. B, Black Lips, C, Deer Hunter, D, Architecture, and Helsinki. Now, before you... I'm just wondering, do you know the answer to this, or or, or will you be deducing it? I absolutely do not know. Like, I don't know the answer to any of these. Um, I will say it's probably not Architecture and Helsinki, because they were 2005-ish sort of band. Um, And uh, it's, it's 2007, so... But all three of the first, uh, the first three bands, they're all eligible for it. I know Cryptograms came out in two thousand seven. Um, the Place Very Strangers, self-titled. So Bruce Willis, actor, kind of a dirtbag, sort of macho guy. If it was Christopher Moltisanti, um, I would say A Place to Bury Strangers because they have a more of a shoegazy sort of thing. Black Lips, and you know they're kind of quasi canceled or hard canceled now. I think that sort of band would appeal to an actor who's trying to look cool. So I'm going to say Black Lips. So I feel like you overthought this oh, because you were, you were trying to you were going with like a best new music in 2007, not taking into account that Bruce Willis is probably not up on the most up to date best new musics. That he'd be a little bit behind. The answer is D. What architecture and Helsinki? Oh yes, my that is God. the answer. Yes. So yeah, because Bruce Willis, he's not reading it every day. He probably has an assistant who is compiling, uh, you know, playlists or something. And this was from a couple years ago, so he's a little bit behind. That's like the most like I can't picture like Bruce, like Bruce Willis, Bruce, like the guy. He's like made like some bluesy ass rock on his own, right? Oh yeah. Okay, so architecture in Helsinki is like the exact. Well, I don't know, maybe. He just wants to, you know, counteract the music he makes on his own. He's like, he calls himself like Bruno or something like that, right? Well, that was in the 80s. Okay. And I'm sure, I mean, maybe he subsequently heard Black Lips and got into <sighs> their, uh, you know, subversive blues rock stylings. But I think my theory is that maybe his daughter was into this Rumor. band. Yeah. Yeah, Rumor was into the band. She played it around him. He's like, oh, that's pretty good. And he uh, wanted to, like, ingratiate himself. jam. Yeah, he's ingratiating himself to his daughter by right. co-signing on something that she liked. That, that's my theory on that. Um, or he's just a hardcore uh, architecture and Helsinki fan. Right. You know, it could be that too. Um, so okay, so Ian got that one wrong. Yeah. So you've stumped him on the first one, <laughs> Alistair. Number two, which one of these was not an item on Denny's 2009 All Nighter menu, featuring various pop punk and alt rock artists of the time? Uh, <laughs> I don't remember this at all. I don't remember Denny's having a indie I rock menu. I vaguely remember this. Uh, this is yeah, Alistair's going deep here. This is like 
entry into Harvard type test. You know, like if you if you ace this, you're going to Harvard Law School. A, Hoobastank's Hobo Burrito. Hobo Burrito? It's a Who Burrito, I believe. It's a Who Burrito. Okay. B, Dashboard Confessionals Acoustic Smoked Chicken Quesadilla. <laughs> C, Good Charlotte's Band of Burritos. Okay. Or D, Taking Back Sundays, Taking Back Bacon Burger Fries. I'm going to go with, okay, so 2009, like, I would say that Taking Back Sunday is the least popular, or, yeah, I would say, like, they're the least popular of this group, and if I'm thinking about, like, what would be on alt-rock radio, Hoobastank definitely would be, Good Charlotte would be in 2009, Dashboard, I think, possibly, Taking Back Sunday had kind of uh, gone a little bit on hiatus during that time, so I'm going to say D. You're saying D. See, I was I said D too. Uh, the answer is B. Ah. Uh, Dashboard Confessionals Acoustic Smoke Chicken Quesadilla. Okay, first off, like I, <laughs> I gotta just I gotta give props to Alistair because like the wrong answer, he had to come up with that one himself. So I mean, yeah, it, it, that's a great that's a great like fake. Yeah, that's a great answer. deep fake. Good man, <laughs> Alistair, you gotta uh, start your own yeah, podcast, you gotta start man. Your you own. are. You're killing it here. So Ian's 0 for 2 Ugh. for the record yeah. here. So you got to you gotta like run the table from here on out to not go below the Mendoza line on this test. Mm. So a lot of pressure on Ian right All now. Right. Uh, which of these bands was featured in an Insight Gaming Magazine article from the 90s where bands went head-to-head in a racing game? <laughs> oh, my God. Print okay, media so a- is dead, man. We 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 are long past the golden age. He's going into the Insight Gaming magazine archives for this one. So uh, so which of these bands went head to head in a racing game? Uh, Blink One Eighty Two, A, B, Filter, C, Three Eleven, D, All of the Above, but also Bush. Hmm. Another Bush reference. Yeah, but uh, I got I got to go with. Uh... I gotta go with D. Like I, I, I gotta go with D only because I hope that's the one that's true. So you're saying Blink One Eighty Two, Filter Three Eleven, and Bush were all in this article yes. from Inside Gaming Magazine, yes. and uh, you are correct. Fuck it yeah. is all of them. Ah. so Ian is on the board. <laughs> I can't wait. one for three. Hold on, like I, I just now now I gotta find this magazine to like to try to figure out like whether they got all the band members to do it. Cause you can, I, I, I just want to imagine uh, like if it was Mario Kart or Gran Turismo, maybe like Mark Hoppus and Gavin Rossdale going head to head or whether it was like the basis from Bush and like Travis. Yeah. Parker. I was going to, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing <laughs> um, that I would, I could see like Robert Patrick doing it. Yeah, definitely. From Filter, but Gavin Rostow, I don't think, would be doing it. I think it'd be, like, the bald guy, the guitar player. Yeah. I don't know his name. The bald guy. The bald or, guy. One of the other guys in Bush. Yeah. I think any one of the of the guys in Blink-182 would have done this. I could see any one Absolutely. of those guys doing it. They play video games. So, I don't know. We need a follow-up to that one, Alistair, if you can let us know, like, which members played in this uh, magazine article. Number four, another magazine article question. In a Rolling Stone article... Modest Mouse's Isaac Brock listed which of these bands in his top five albums of the 2000s? A, Kings of Leon, B, Kasabian, 
C, she wants revenge. D, all of the above. <laughs> oh, God. It can't be D. I, 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 want so ba- I want so badly for it to be D because that would mean that like 60% of my, like Isaac Brock's top albums of the 2000s were these just trash like uh, rock bands. Like, granted, like Kasabian, like I know they're canceled now, but like um, they had a couple. What are they canceled? I didn't know Kasabian's I'm canceled. Pretty sure, I didn't I'm pretty this. sure they're canceled. Um, For what? What happened? Uh, I think the lead singer got into some like real uh, sketchy stuff. Like, don't quote me on that. But um, yeah, they, okay. they, 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 they had a, co- they had a couple of good songs on like FIFA soundtracks. Like that's the kind of band they are. <laughs> she wants, she wants All revenge right. that like, I, that band sucks. Like I can't, I think, I think they played the, uh, just like heaven festival in 2019 that I went to. It's like, yeah, this band was never good. Um, Kings of Leon. I guarantee that they shared stages with, uh, modest mouse at that point. Because they were both like popular rock acts on the radio, so I'm going to say A. It is ah. A. Kings of Leon is the answer. Well, you know, look, depending on the record, I don't think it's that bad of a call by Isaac Brock, but you know, it's definitely the least offensive out of any of these choices. Although, if if he had picked the She Wants Revenge record, which I believe was a self titled record, yeah. I don't know if they had more than one record. I only know that guarantee uh, self titled one. Um. That would have been funny though. Oh. I, 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 I'm with you. I wish it was all of the above, yeah. but yeah, it's it's just Kings of Leon. Last question. Right. So you're two out of four. Right. You're bad in five hundred right now. So you're, you, Ian's making a comeback here. This last one will, will determine whether you had more correct or more incorrect in this quiz. In a 2003 Pitchfork article, yeah. Death Cab for Cuties Ben Gibbard ranked his favorite songs by this artist. A Pearl Jam, B Fugazi, C Holland Oates, D Share. All right, I know, I definitely know this one because I remember reading. Like, look, you asked me about like a, a Pitchfork article in 2003. I'm gonna know the answer. I'm just kind of, <laughs> I'm just kind of happy that uh, they got Ben Gibber to do an interview because I'm pretty. Uh, I remember that they uh, were not particularly kind to transatlanticism. Uh, the answer is Holland Oates. Yes, you are correct. I as, as soon as I saw. 2003 Pitchfork article. I'm like, this is money in the bank. (laughs) Ian is going to get this one right. So three out of five for Ian. Good comeback by you, by the way. You you got in a hole early (laughs) on. Um, I think the questions got a little bit easier towards the end. Rain on my parade, why don't you? Uh, I'm just saying, you know, the Pitchfork, that's, that's a little bit easier than citing Insight Magazine. Yeah. Uh, you know, which I didn't know was there. which I did not know was real. So, <laughs> we, we, but he provided links. Right. He provided links to all of these. So this has all been verified. Uh, so yeah, great question, Alistair. That was amazing. Please, you know, if if anyone has any other quizzes like that, send them in. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, let's get to our next question. All right. It's kind of anticlimactic after that question. Quite I know, frankly. right? Look, if we ever have any uh, weeks where there's just not a lot happening, like we have, we we we've got our mailbags, we've got our IndyCast Hall of Fame. Next time, we got to like call up Alistair. It's like, man, we need yeah, a quiz. we need a quiz. And you know, I I should have said this at the beginning that like people at home, you should have like paused your podcast <laughs> so you could answer it yourself before hearing the answer. 
but yeah, we have to have some sort of trivia, like IndyCast trivia tournament or something. <laughs> Looking forward, just throwing that out there. And it could be sourced from our readers. You should send us in trivia things and I don't know, maybe we can figure something like that out. Anyway, let's get to our second question. Do you want to read this one? Mm. Yes, I do. Because, man, I love this one. So, uh, hey, Steve and Ian. This one addresses both of us, which is nice. Uh, Tyler from Philadelphia here. And uh, like, I immediately think of like the 15 people from Philadelphia <laughs> in indie bands I know who are named Tyler. Uh, big fan and longtime reader of both your work. Was going back through old playlists and stumbled into a real remembering some guys moment. Do you remember in the early 2010s, which... Yes, I do. Uh, when every band had around eight members and kind of sounded like local natives. This is a more niche version of blog rock or landfill indie that has to include xylophones, horns, and a solo tom drum on stage. Some examples include Hey Rosetta and Freelance Whales. Hey Rosetta had an exclamation point. I've included a playlist below. Love yeah, it, we'll we'll post way. that on our Twitter, by the way. Yes. I was trying to come up with a name with this moment of music. I thought Manor Core, based on Gorilla Manor, would be fitting. Some friends suggested Woe Core or Baroque Twee. But just curious what you guys think about this era slash trend. I was thinking clarifications had to be post-Arcade Fire Decemberist, but pre-Mumford Lumineers. Not exactly a dig, but there are some bands and songs that would fit into this that I genuinely love, such as Los Campesinos and Frightened Rabbit, but some that seem totally hilarious in hindsight. So let me know what you think. And also, we got to give a shout out to the Power Pop Heads chat, PP Heads. Uh, saying that out loud makes me feel like I've been played. Uh, that would be sick. So, Steve, uh, I know how I feel about like th- this was very much in my wheelhouse. I don't know what your relationship with this style of music. Oh is, yeah, so I I'm mean, dying to hear. It's funny. And by the way, I feel like we should we should explain for the people who may not be total local natives heads that Gorilla Manor. That reference, that's a reference to their debut record, for those of you who may not know that. Um, You know, I don't know if you saw this over the break. There was a story in Vox about uh, cringe culture from the Obama years, basically pop culture that people really embraced during uh, the Obama administration that now seems embarrassing. And the writer talked about Hamilton and Parks and Recreation and the Harry Potter books. Didn't mention any kind of music, but... This uh, email reminded me of that a little bit, just because this kind of music, it reminds me of particularly like the first term of the Obama years where you had this kind of indie music that was vaguely hippie-ish, very uplifting, kind of quirky, as the uh, listener said, lots of band members, very expansive sound. Um I don't know if this totally applies because I don't really think of them as listening as sounding like local natives. But the first band I thought of when I read mm-hmm. this was Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. Oh, uh, yeah, being a band yeah. that like I remember because I was working as the city editor of the Milwaukee edition of the AV Club, like in this <laughs> era, the late aughts and early two thousand tens. Which, by the way, remember some alt-weeklies. We're remembering some alt-weeklies here, too. Um, but I would review concerts a lot during this time, and Edward Sharp was like a huge touring act. Like, they came to Milwaukee all the time, and they would they were playing. They started out playing, like, small clubs, and, like, within, like, a year or two, they were playing, like, you know, like a 3,000-seat theater in town. Um, and I remember they had that hit song, Home, 
around this time, which which was yeah. like in tons of commercials and movie trailers. And also, coincidentally, do you remember that <laughs> Philip Phillips song, Home? You know, Philip Phillips from American yeah. Idol? I mentioned... I mentioned that in the the, the Foxing um, interview I did for Uproxx because, like, one of their songs kind of – like, I would hear that song in Sprouse. I'm like, this is kind of a banger right here. And I'd look up the lyrics like, oh, that's Phil- that's what Philip Phillips sounds like? Yeah, Phil Phillips, who was like a – his role model was obviously, like, uh, Dave Matthews. Like, he was a very Dave Matthews-inspired uh, oh, yeah, artist. Yeah. But, like, his hit single, Home, is kind of a ripoff of Edward Sharp's single home like they sound very similar very kind of twinkly <laughs> sounding songs with like the like yeah. uh, the ah, ah, ah like that kind of like backing vocal yeah. um so that's what i thought of when this came up and it again it was like very popular for about a three or four year span but then it just seems like now that these bands have no footprint whatsoever it's like you know like like <laughs> avatar was like a huge movie during this period and like that mm-hmm. has no footprint although i guess there's going to be a sequel to it this year yeah also there was an episode of how to with john wilson where like there's a group of people who talk about they 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 speak in the avatar language and talk about like how that movie like saved their lives more or less so um yeah it doesn't have a footprint uh, in twitter or like you know the the cool person discourse but you know it does have an impact but i get it well, then that makes me think that there's maybe like a secret majority or a silent majority of Edward <laughs> Sharp fans waiting for uh, the Edward Sharp revival. Yeah, I I, I think about like uh, uh, one thing that kind of goes unspoken with this uh, style of music is that so much of it reminds me of living in Los Angeles from uh, 2006 to let's say 2012. Also, it's kind of funny that like local natives are held up as the epitome of this because they themselves were somewhat like seen as like an amalgamation of like all these indie like trends from a few years prior, like Grizzly Bear or whatever. First off, like local natives, great band. Like I, I, I always want to put that out there. Hummingbird, though, I think is their best uh, song. Um, but yeah, this. This it's 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 this is like prime remembering some guy's territory because um unlike the landfill indie that this person mentions in the uk like none of these bands got with the exception of maybe like edward sharp none of them got like super big um to the point where they are just part of the culture just by nature of being played so much um and i'm looking at this playlist and the first thing that you know that your tyler your first mistake was not including bishop allen this to me it epitomizes that kind of Obama era, twinkly, uh, quasi twee sort of tail end of blog rock. They were a huge band of the Nick and Nora Infinite Playlist soundtrack. And fun fact, one of the guys from Bishop Allen, I think they went to Harvard. Uh, one of the guys co-founded OK Cupid. So I mean, wow. talk about being a legend in two. Yeah, legend in two games. Um, yeah, this this style of music is super interesting to me because um, I think we see all trends eventually reemerge. Uh, we're seeing that with like new metal. I think we're kind of maybe sort of kind of seeing a dance punk revival, or maybe Meet Me in the Bathroom stuff is starting to filter back in. I am trying to envision a world where this style of music and like let's be perfectly clear. 
this stuff was never, ever, ever seen as cool. Like I rem- I'm looking at this playlist and like having flashbacks to writing like 3.5 and like 4.8 reviews at Pitchfork for like freelance whales. Like this is the last style of music you could get a free shot at. Well, because it, it, it was just. I mean, it was kind of filtered down from like Arcade Fire. I feel like they are of course the beginnings yeah. of this, and you have Decemberis, and you know we talked in the in the letter writer referred to that. And those were critically acclaimed bands, but then yeah, it, it filtered down to um, all these this this like subsequent generation of groups that uh, really kind of turned that into a formula, and they actually ended up having hits, which like Arcade Fire never had like a song as popular as Home, the Edward yeah. Sharp song. Um, I think the thing that would prevent this from becoming a trend is that I can't see a band in 2022 having like eight members or nine members, <laughs> yeah. you know, like where you could afford to yeah. do that um, or like where that would just at all seem feasible uh, to yeah. do. I, I have a hard time believing that that could happen. Yeah. And I think that like what the kind of unspoken thing about like Obama cringe culture Particularly with this style of music, it is just like the most painfully white shit you can imagine. Um, you know, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros is like particular. You just think of uh, just like eight guys, like kind of Laurel Canyon. Like they're all sort of wearing these stupid ass hats, which, you know, I'll admit that was a thing in L.A. back in the time, back in the day. Uh, I can't act like I'm above it. Um yeah, and, and and this kind of like optimism that just seems so. It could be great counter programming in twenty twenty, but it just like I just don't know what sort of band might subject themselves to that. That being said, um, there is uh, there is a new album that's coming out in in about a month or two, I think, from a band called String Machine. I love this band. They're from Pittsburgh. There's like five or six or seven members. Uh, they play, uh, there are banjos in there, there are strings. This, it's a great record, and it also sort of kind of brings this sound back. So I'm very interested to see how that's received, because they do seem positioned to be a breakout band in 2022. It's like sort of like an and, but sort of thing. And they remind me uh, not a little bit of like Anathalo. <laughs> right, well, we'll see. I don't know. I, I, I would, I would think it was. I would find it hilarious if this came back. So I'm cheering for it to happen because, yeah, uh, you know, any chance that we can, uh, any excuse that we'll have now to like write reappraisals of some of these bands. Hey, Marseilles and Typhoon <laughs> and said the whale. That'd like all. Margo and the Nuclear So-and-Sos, low-key kind of an influential band. Like, you'll find a lot of, like, uh, bands in that um, in that foxing sort of realm, like the more kind of, like, wimpier, like, uh, emo. Like, Margo and the Nuclear So-and-Sos, Anathalo, important bands. Yep. Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, this is an unpredictable era. So why yeah. would we predict anything? Um, yeah, maybe maybe like a Margo and Nuclear So and So song will get like huge on TikTok, and ne- then we'll be doing an entire episode dedicated to on a freezing Chicago street, and it will all end with Philip Phillips being reappraised <laughs> and getting like an HBO documentary. Yeah, um, we're we're already we're all we were so worried about being rusty, but it's very clear we're ahead of the curve. <laughs> Let's uh, get to our next question. This is from Jason in West Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, Jason mm. writes, during this 
year's year-end list season, I feel like I've been noticing more coverage of non-Western-sounding music, such as a Rouge at Fap, I hope I pronounced that correctly, and I'm sure I didn't, and Mdu Mokdar. I was happy to see this, but then after doing some more research, I noticed that Aruj Atfab lives in Brooklyn and that Mdu Mokdar recently signed to Matador Records. As someone who knows very little, little about how music publications are run, this leaves a lot of questions floating around in my head. Aside from the fact that a lot of the publications we talk about seem to be based in the U.S. and U.K., is there a reason why they don't seem to cover many non-Western artists? Do publications get paid by labels to cover or review their artists? Would Afrique Victim, which is the Mdu Mokdar record, have been as acclaimed if it hadn't been released on Matador? Am I even asking the right questions? I'm curious what your guys' thoughts, insights are on this. Just want to say that I appreciate you guys and love listening to the show every week. Thank you, Jason from West Hartford. Um, So yeah, so Jason is wondering why... And this isn't just true. What's the deal? Yeah, it's not just year-endless, really. It's just, I I would say, music coverage in general doesn't cover much non-Western music. And and he's even suggesting, or he's asking, are are music publications on the take? Are we we getting paid (laughs) off just to cover American music or English-speaking music? Uh, I'll let you go first. How would you respond to this? (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Every now and again, we'll get like a question about uh, conspiracy theorizing about backroom deal making and like the Matador bag man coming to uh, you know Uproxx with a you know with a with a with 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 loot for for us to cover band. I mean, I I've come to love these sort of uh, theorizing because. I mean, it makes our job sound way more interesting than it really is. It sounds like there's, you know, there's much more danger and intrigue when in reality, I mean, you kind of got, you, you like, he kind of figured it out, which is that, I mean, Matador did not just pluck some guy out of West Africa and put him on the label. Like, you know, they've been making records for a while and they got discovered by Matador, which put them in front of more eyes and ears. Uh, and that's what labels do, you know? And also like, uh, you know, that's also why artists might move to Brooklyn, because you're closer to the center of media. Um, and I don't, I mean, in, in in the streaming internet age, you know, it shouldn't matter where you're from or, like, what label are you on. But, like, at the end of the day, there's just so much music out there that uh, there has to, you know, publications just need to rely on some kind of filter, like a trusted label or oh, I've seen this person at shows around Brooklyn, or I have context to which to put them. Um, and to counteract uh, the, the the artist that um, they mentioned, you know, you can look at someone like Power Newell, who is just like literally some anonymous guy in Seoul, Korea, uh, making an album that sounds like it was, you know, made on a shitty uh, laptop, and it gets a lot of hype simply because people on Rate Your Music found it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I would love... I, I think there's this expectation that um, all publications need to cover all forms of music equally, and it's just not really realistic. And I mean, I could try to engage with, you know, Singaporean emo or like there's a lot going on in Asia, but I just, you know, the lyrics, are, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't speak the language. I don't understand the context of it socially. And so it's just really harder for me to be an expert on this. So, um, I look for it. Hopefully there are people who serve as guides, um, you know, like Keegan Bradford's Friendship International, 
shout out to that. But yeah, I mean, it, we just kind of have to be, I suppose, realistic about it. Yeah, I, I just want to say unequivocally that publications, uh, as a rule, are not paid by labels to cover music. I just like want to say that because I actually feel like this is a common belief among a lot of readers that this is how it's determined what things are covered, that there's some money changing hands or uh, some other thing that isn't based on why, you know, like some sort of editorial reason for covering something. So I just like want to say that that isn't the case. I'm sure there have been instances of that, but like that's not a common thing. I think the reason why this doesn't happen and, I think Ian, you alluded to this, is that the expertise just isn't there. There's not a lot of music yeah. writers that that are just well versed in this kind of uh, music, and um, certainly, you know, if this is something you're interested in in reading about, I can definitely see how that would be a negative thing for you because it sounds like like you in particular, like you want to read about this kind of stuff, and you're not seeing it. Um, I will say, however, that on balance, the majority of readers are not interested in it, you know, and that's another factor here that comes into play that, you know, it's hard enough to get people to click on an article about an English speaking act that they haven't heard of. But like, if you then add a language barrier to it, it makes it that much more difficult. Um, I also say that in the case of Amdu Mokhtar, that along with being on Matador Records, the kind of music that he plays is very approachable for Western listeners because he's basically playing guitar heavy rock music. You know, like there's yeah. a lot of songs on his record that kind of sound like ZZ Top or Jimi Hendrix or even like the Grateful Dead. And a lot of people in America and in Europe like that kind of music. So it's easy to understand, uh, which is why I'm sure, you know, he ended up on Matador Records because he's really like not that different from like a lot of other bands that are on that yeah. label. Um but just to circle back to, you know, this belief, which again, I think is pretty common that like music critics or journalists are being paid off by labels to yeah. cover certain acts. Um, I just feel like that overstates the influence that journalists have. I, and I'm always put in my place with this whenever I go to concerts with my good friend who's a program director at a big rock station here in Minneapolis. The way that he is treated by labels is yeah. dramatically different from how journalists are treated. I'm t- you know, he gets to go backstage. They take him out to dinner. They're buying him drinks. You know, I got to meet the edge because I was with him, you know, like backstage at a YouTube concert. Like no one's taking me backstage to do that on my <laughs> own. You know, even, even in this time, like where radio, like we feel like radio is diminished. Nope. Even now, like they like labels look at them as being much more important than a journalist. So I, I I don't even think that they would feel like that was money worth spending, even if that was something that yeah. they were doing. Um, yeah. So I I just want to point that out because I think in our world that we all populate online, it's easy to think, oh, a review on this particular website, it's going to make all the difference in the world. When yeah, it might have some impact, but in the real world. You know, like things like radio, things that we might think are irrelevant, they still matter more in many cases than our yeah. little, you know, keyboard peckings, you know, on, on certain bands. Yeah, yeah. Music writers sometimes have hard enough, uh, have enough trouble getting paid by like the publications. Like they're definitely not getting that extra money from a label, right? 
I don't know if it was a good thing that I just said that like we're irrelevant, basically. Uh, you know, but we're not totally irrelevant. But I'm just saying, yeah, ra- radical transparency on IndieCast in 2022. That's like our we we are just being completely open about the about the process. I'm just saying we're not money under the table relevant. You know, we're not that level. No, <laughs> we're not that level. Yeah, relevant. even if these. Yeah, these labels don't have like they they don't have like uh like a slush fund to uh you know to to pay off people like me you know yeah unfortunately you know if anyone yeah. wants us if, <laughs> like Philip Phillips people if you like want to uh, yeah. pay us off uh, so we can talk more yeah. about Philip Phillips uh, yeah I'm a, I'm a cheap date when it comes to that yes. sort of thing so the DMs are open yeah. um, <laughs> all right last question here and I feel like you need to read this one. Yeah, boy, the, the, reading my mind on this one. Um, so Lewis from Chattanooga uh, uh, wants to wants to tell us that he was watching. He was recently watching the season finale of Gossip Girl. I mean, thank you that, for letting us know that. I'm guessing that's the um, new one, right? The HBO one. That's got to be. Yeah. So like, I have a lot. I have surprisingly a lot to say about this show uh, since the uh, last IndieCast, but. Okay, so the characters were all in a, quote, blue-collar bar in the Hamptons, funny scenario, when one character told another character that he was going to put on their song. He proceeded to go to the jukebox and put on the Chainsmokers Coldplay collab, something just like this. <laughs> Every, I, I, I wish that we could just, like, cut in I that know. scene right uh, now. See, uh, yeah. I, 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 I've never seen this show, but now I'm going to watch this show just to see yes. this scene. This sounds incredible. Yeah, so everyone at the bar immediately stopped what they were doing and started dancing and singing along. The Gossip Girl characters and the blue-collar workers alike. I was shocked. It was one of the most bizarre scenes I've ever seen in a TV show. Is this something that would happen in the real world? Sincerely, Lewis from Chattanooga, asking the hard questions. So, this is interesting to me because I'm, I, I don't watch Gossip Girl, so I don't know the characters or, you know, if they're big music fans or not. But I'll just say that I'm always a fan of TV shows that give the characters like an, like a realistic sort of middling music taste, you know, where they're not like a connoisseur, but they're just like a regular person and the kind of music that they would like. Like I can buy that like two people would love something just like this because I think that song has been streamed like two billion times so people yeah. obviously love that song like i get annoyed like one thing i don't like about david simon shows is that characters on his shows always have like great music taste like i saw this episode of the wire <laughs> where there was like a prison yeah. guard driving to work and he was listening to like this like vintage like r&b blues song from like the 50s yeah. and i'm like dude this prison guard would either be listening to sports talk radio or like just some yeah. crappy like light fm you know music that you like like good times great oldies type type channel like <laughs> he's not listening to you know he's not digging into like the alan lomax archives to yeah. for songs to listen to on the way to work that's why you know like when you watch sopranos i always appreciate that david chase made yeah. tony soprano <laughs> he, he likes journey and deep purple and you know, dark yeah, side of the New moon. Jersey king, New Jersey classic rock king shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like realistic to his to his music taste, like or a character like that. So, yeah, not without knowing who these characters are. Like in a way, like you know, to answer the question, yeah, I could buy that because you know, like a lot of people love that song. Yeah, 
1.7 billion streams. Jeez Louise. Which is not the most popular Chainsmokers song. Closer is. That's got about, that's got two billion oh, in the bank. My God. Yeah. So, um, yeah, over, over the holidays, um, my wife uh, engaged in a full-on rewatch of Gossip Girl. Like, at, like uh, you know, work slows down because of the holidays and COVID. So every time I would come home or, you know, like leave my office from writing, Gossip Girl would be on. And I think this really nicely dovetails with the woe-core, manor-core discussion because, you know, this... This show is very much of that era, 2008, 2009. If you go back to the original, there's definitely some Rooney songs on there. <laughs> Seawolf. Like oh, Seawolf. If, yeah, if you're from L.A., you know about Seawolf. The Deadly Syndrome, the first band I ever reviewed at Pitchfork is on there. Um, and, like real Black Crystal Wolf Kids hours. By the way, if you know who Black Crystal Wolf Kids are... They're still playing. They're an indie rock cover band. Uh, you should really look at their wow. website. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, I, I do agree with you that in a lot of ways, there's like wishful thinking that goes on in TV shows, like where music, where where the the show writers kind of want to project their tastes onto um, you know the people in it, which is how you end up. I I just think of like that movie Booksmart, where like teens in 2018 are like supposedly jamming out to LCD sound system. <laughs> uh, um, right. But yeah, I, and also I got to mention, like the one time I um, sat down and like watched some of the show with her, there was a discussion about having a, at a wedding, a flash mob to Steely Dan. And then there for like a minute or so, they just dunk on Steely Dan. Oh. Uh, it's like, yeah, like who's gonna be who wants to listen to Steely Dan? It's just music for fifty-year-old dudes. It's like, wow, all right, like man, I I miss where this became a hot take. Um, but I mean, boo, as gossip as it girl, is, boo. Yeah, you, you lost as me. Ridicu- you lost me now. I was on board <laughs> with you. Now you lost me. But I do think that you know, even if this show very much is of its era, and I think that was kind of a problem with the reboot. I think it is so much more likely that a Chainsmokers Coldplay song will bring the masses together than like what Lorelai or Rory might listen to. I assume, you know, they're kind of, uh, they, they kind of have like more of like a woe core manner core sort of deal. I mean, if they played Rudy shaken, might that, might that work? I, I mean, it would definitely get me on the dance floor more quickly than uh, you know the Coldplay uh, Co- uh, Chainsmokers song. But yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of like a better song for this environment because apparently it's a blue collar bar. Like maybe it should have been like in the Hamptons. Yeah, maybe it should have been like a Bring Me the Horizon song or like a Five Finger Death oh. Punch song. Like maybe I, I, like that would have killed <laughs> a blue collar bar. I bet. Not Kings of Leon. You gotta play Sex on Fire. Oh. I, uh, I I think that I I like that is close enough to like kind of Rolling Stone people, but like still also very much like blue collar in presentation. I think it'd have been funny if they would have been like, "Let's play our song," and it's like Avenge Sevenfold, you know, <laughs> it's just like this just butt rock song just blaring out, and like people just getting up. With the yeah, theory of a dead man, yeah, exactly. like I don't know, we that, we need to like pivot to that. Like we need to start writing our own TV show where we project our desire to see 
like these, you know, well manicured, very verbose people, but like deep down inside, they're super into like K the 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 two new bands you get to hear on K Rock. Yeah, exactly. This this should just be that. I think that would be a funny bit. Like if you just showed clips from prestige shows and then you over like and they're listening to a song like <laughs> Yellow Jackets. Like I hear like Yellow Jackets is like the new sort of prestige mm-hmm. show, and like over the closing credits, it's just yeah, it's like Shine Down. Like a shutting down song, just <laughs> blasting. You know, I think that'd be pretty funny. Um, we've now reached the end of this episode of IndieCast, and uh, we will yes. be back. We're not going to be three weeks off this time. No. We'll be back next week. We're ready to rock in 2022 with more news and reviews and hashing out trends. That's, That's right. right. So we'll see you then. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 